You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Like a lot of great titans of industry and military commanders and general machismo egomaniacs denying their own basic human needs, Thomas Edison was very public in his belief that you didn't need to sleep. Or at least he didn't need to sleep. He, and he admitted this. He slept from about four or five hours a night. Leonard DeGraff is an archivist at Edison National State Park in West Orange, New Jersey, which was Thomas Edison's later career laboratory and office. And it turns out I was carrying on a long tradition of media people who pilgrimage here to see how Edison lived and worked. There are legends or stories that he would stay up for 40 days and 40 nights, but that was kind of rare. That didn't happen a lot. But it did happen. It happened, yeah. Okay, for 40 days. Well, you see the media also kind of playing into the sort of heroic, kind of romantic view of the inventor who never sleeps. Edison convinced his family to train themselves to sleep less, and he insisted that his employees do the same. His team was actually nicknamed the Insomnia Squad. Honestly, Edison peddled this advice to anyone. Leonard showed me a specific letter from the State Park's archive where Edison wrote to this random fan, There seems to be no actual reason why we should sleep from a scientific standpoint. And then a very subtle flex. I noticed in automobiling through Switzerland that towns which had electric lights had many new buildings and the people were active and on the streets at 12 o'clock midnight, whereas in towns without electric lights, everybody was in bed about 8.30 and the town was a dead one. So Edison does not even have to say there that that was his doing, that he invented the light bulb, that he was the one who presented these Swiss towns with the possibility of continuous day within their own private, illuminated havens. By the time Edison set up his laboratory in West Orange, everyone knew his deal, that he was the great opposer of sleep, a force of human ingenuity who was giving nature itself a run for its money, and Edison's office reflects that. It has these soaring ceilings and ornate mahogany shelves with thousands of books, and it looks like the library from Beauty and the Beast. The room is really designed to give people an impression of who Edison was, as if they needed a reminder. Although, right there in the office of the mythologically great enemy of sleep, nestled amidst 10,000 volumes and trophies and letters from people of renown, off in a corner, discreetly, is a little damning piece of evidence to the contrary. There's a bed. There is a bed. There's a, a cot in the um, corner of the library. There's no chance we could touch it, huh? Uh, that's not my call. Okay. <laughs> From New York Magazine's Curbed and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Nice Try. I'm Avery Truffleman. The mattress is clearly important. Or rather, sleep is important. But the mattress is significant enough that even the great destroyer of sleep had one in his office. Even if this mattress was apparently very thin and stiff. 
which, of course, a modern mattress company would probably be like, aha, this was Edison's problem. He had the wrong mattress, right? Mattresses have become such souped-up wellness products. They've been marketed into optimized sleeping equipment, which is hype that I myself have played into. Let me clear the air. As a podcaster, I have certainly been in bed with the mattress industry. Wink. In the past, I have absolutely shilled for startup mattress companies. And for all I know, this episode could get a mattress ad put in it, which would be so funny. And you should really let me know if that happens. Because the mattress field has gotten so crowded with so many different companies all trying to out-advertise each other. Now you have 150 mattress-in-a-box companies in the United States. It's easy to start a mattress company now, right? It's easy to essentially go and say, I want a foam mattress with this, create a label for the mattress, put it online, Shopify, and boom. I cannot believe Shelly Huff said that to me because she runs one of these companies. I'm Shelly Huff. I'm the chief operating officer of Serta Simmons Bedding and the CEO of Tuft & Needle. So Shelly Huff is at the intersection of two worlds. One of her companies represents the brave new frontier of mattresses, and the other is the old guard. The mattress game used to be run entirely by the three S's, Serta, Simmons, Sealy, back when they were all cotton and springs. A mattress store would carry a selection of them, and then you'd go try a bunch, and most people didn't really remember which brand of mattress they walked away with and ended up sleeping on for a third of their days. And then NASA developed memory foam technology in the 1970s, which made its way into commercial mattresses by the 90s. So it was only a matter of time before companies realized an all-foam mattress could be stuffed in a box and just shipped directly to the consumer. You used to be able to differentiate them and say, Mattresses in a box were 100% foam mattresses, um, and then flat mattresses were had springs in them. But now that is not the case. Almost any sort of mattress can be vacuum-packed into a box with any number of combinations of springs and foam. There's a lot more um, differentiation in terms of how a mattress can be made. Do you have three layers of foam? Do you have four layers of foam? Is it springs? Is it not springs? So this rendered a mattress showroom pretty much optional and made the individual mattress brand way more important than the store. Not to mention more lucrative. Casper and Purple and others and Tuft & Needle have made this a category that investors pay attention to. So there's money available. So Serta got into the box game by buying Tuft & Needle. And I swear this is sheer coincidence, but... I just so happened to have a Tuft & Needle mattress that a friend gave me because he was moving. And I have no idea if it's good or not, which I guess means it works, but I really could not tell you. The mattress is a product you use while unconscious. We really all are interested in sleep performance and what that means in terms of our own performance. This all means that to gauge and sell the performance of their mattresses, Companies are encouraging you to judge your own performance, which leads to performance anxiety. What does it mean to actually continue to optimize your sleep so that your performance is as good as it possibly can be with whatever you're doing in your life the next day? Mattress shopping gets talked about like dating. The one for you is out there. And since you're committed to sleeping with them every night for at least a decade, this is going to determine a large percentage of your happiness and general life trajectory especially if you're meeting one through the internet. Which is why Wirecutter has a senior staff writer devoted to covering sleep and mattresses. Um, what mattress do you use? So I haven't slept on my own mattress for, gosh, two and a half years because oh. 
because I've just been sleeping on one mattress after the other. In all, I've tried maybe 79 or so mattresses since I started maybe three years ago. Joanne Chen's job is to cut through all the ambiguous marketing buzzwords that mattress companies throw around. Like, everything nowadays is premium. You know, I mean, what is premium foam? Like, they don't say, like, how dense it is or the type of foam. People are just throwing in stuff that sounds good that I don't think really affects your sleep. Like, a green tea mattress, um, lavender in the mattress, um, olive oil in the mattress. It's so perfect. At a recent trade show in Vegas, Joanne said she saw CBD mattresses. I think it's very hard and very subjective to find something that you feel like really enhances your sleep. It's all personal preference. Like, do you want to feel held when you sink into a foam mattress? Or do you want to sort of rest atop a spring mattress? Or do you want some combination of springs and foam? Joanne says you probably can't even go by consumer reviews because you have no idea if someone reviewing a mattress shares your preferences. And so a mattress reporter can really only look at the cold, hard facts, like the gauge of the coils and the density of the foam and how that may or may not be appropriate for different bodies and different sleeping styles. Combing through Joanne's comprehensive reviews, I started to think of mattresses as giant slabs of tofu. Like, some are made of higher-quality soybeans, some have cuter packaging, some are softer and some are firmer and some are more expensive, but ultimately it all depends on how much you liked tofu to begin with and what you do with the tofu. Did I take this metaphor too far? Well, what's real is how how comfortable it feels to you, but that's subjective. So um, more specifically, uh, our editor on this show realized she needed a mattress. Do you have any general advice for that outing? Oh, that's, um, I guess it depends on what kind of mattress she wants. Lisa Pollock, who helps out editing on this show, told me she had not replaced her mattress in 20 years. She has spent two decades not thinking about whether she likes firm or soft or if she wants to sink into foam or rest on top of it. So Joanne's advice was to just try as much as possible. Raymore and Flanagan has a bunch of different types of mattresses set up um, that you could compare different brands. So to the Union Square, Raymore and Flanagan, we went. And as soon as Lisa, her husband Chuck, and I entered the fluorescent lit showroom, a salesman beelined right towards us. Um, we're here to look at mattresses. Is that all here? I am here in a You're working with the budget? He asked about budget immediately. But Chuck and Lisa barely knew how to answer because they didn't know what was worth paying for. And it would prove to be surprisingly difficult to figure out. What has changed? What's the advance in mattress tech over yeah. the last 20 years yeah. that we should, like... This is technology now. Triple, triple one coil. Coil within a coil. Within a coil. More coils. Even though Joanne Chen had warned me to stay skeptical about the fancy lingo and features... They make a Pro Adapt Lux, Pro Breeze, which is cooler than the normal. I was more or less bamboozled. Plus, inside is cooling gel... Cooling gel. Yeah. And all the jargon and bells and whistles made it really hard for Chuck and Lisa to just feel. This is, feels very comfortable to me, yeah. but can I perceive what was different between this and the last one? Can you? You should be able to. Take your brains out of it and let your body do the thing. You're right. After an hour of leading Lisa and Chuck from bed to bed to bed, which they each tested for a matter of minutes, 
the salesman had them seriously considering a $3,500 mattress. Or at least it sounded like Chuck was seriously considering it. It's a, it's a big expense. Like, uh, do we, you know, it's that sort of, do we do this for ourselves? When in your life are you going to do something like this for yourselves? This salesman was very good. But I don't think it was just that. I mean, people splash out on mail-order mattresses, too. I think a spell was cast once we had stopped to consider the importance of sleep and the quiet luxury of the mattress and surrendered to someone else's expertise. I, too, fell under this spell, even as Chuck and Lisa's unexplained third wheel tagging along with them. It's like when you leave the dentist's office and suddenly you're like, oh, wow, flossing. Yes, flossing is the most important thing. I will do this every day. Especially because all over the showroom there were these posters with vaguely plausible facts that said things like, $411 billion were lost in the U.S. each year due to sleep deprivation. Or that there's a 60% increase in negative emotional reactions among people who are not well-rested, which, like... I would love to see how that study was conducted. But in aggregate, all those posters were kind of convincing. And it turns out it's very elegant marketing to just put those facts out there, which I can only assume are actually factual, and let the consumer make the logical leap that better sleep can come from a mattress. In your book, The Mystery of Sleep, you only mention mattresses for like a page. Yeah, and so I wonder if it. I, I'm, I'm has... surprised. I'm surprised I even mentioned it for a page. Really? Uh, yeah. Doctor Krieger is a big name in the sleep world. He identified the first sleep apnea case in North America. My name is Mayor Krieger, and I'm a professor of medicine at Yale University, and I've been dealing with sleep problems and sleep disorders for I don't know forty years or something like that. And he spends remarkably little time thinking about mattresses. Very often, if someone has very poor sleep, um, it's not usually the fault of the mattress, uh, unless it's sort of obvious that the mattress is a problem. And he means an obviously obvious problem, like if the mattress is sagging in the middle or if a spring is popping out. And it's very difficult to recommend any specific mattress because one has no idea how someone is going to react sleeping on a given mattress. People need to uh, not oversell in their own minds what mattress to get. You know, people have asked me over the years many, many times, what kind of mattress should I buy? And I basically tell them, whatever mattress you buy, make sure you can return it if you don't like it. <laughs> That is truly the only universal advice that I found. Make sure your mattress is returnable, which mattress-in-a-box companies use as a real selling point. Basically, if you order a tuft-and-needle mattress, you can sleep on it for 100 days, and if you don't like it, you can essentially return it. Even though, literally and metaphorically, once you let the mattress out of the box, it's hard to put it back in again. So in many states, we'll go pick it up from consumers so that they don't have to mess with it. And so then what happens once, like, do the mattresses get cleaned? Do they get taught? Like, what happens with oh, a we tested will not, mattress? Yeah, we won't resell a, a tested mattress. So it's essentially oh. broke. So what we essentially do is try to is um, break the mattress down and um, the parts that um, it's mostly disposed of, basically. Now that I know that returning a mattress is essentially tossing it, I will be far too guilty to ever actually do that. 
especially if the mattress is just fine. It's really hard to understand what actually is the best mattress. There's no scientific optimization of like what actually is the best mattress. Humanity has been more or less winging it with what to sleep on ever since we evolved to be too heavy for tree branches and gathered leaves and grass to lie on. We have good reason to want to sleep on something soft. It just doesn't have to be like five premium layers of NASA-grade foam with CBD in it. Because barring specific chiropractic issues, if one is tired enough, one could theoretically conk out on just about almost anything. And that is exactly what Thomas Edison used to do. He wasn't fussy about where he slept. He didn't particularly care. He claimed that he had the ability to sleep anywhere. Archivist Leonard DeGraff said that even though Thomas Edison claimed he didn't sleep very much, he used to take little naps everywhere all the time. He could sleep on a workbench. He could sleep on the floor. And so why did I spy a cot tucked away in the corner of Edison's office? It wasn't to ensure that his naps were higher quality or anything. It was just a matter of propriety. Thomas Edison's wife put the cot in to keep up appearances. She didn't think it was dignified for Edison to just be sleeping on a workbench. Mina Edison was mostly concerned that a reporter or a photographer would capture Edison passed out, sprawled somewhere in the middle of the factory. And by imposing this slab of tofu in her husband's office, Mina was enforcing the unspoken rules of sleep. That you should sleep on a mattress in a private place or as close to a private place as possible. Because over the course of the 20th century, a long and tacit list of rules have developed around what is considered good and healthy and normal and productive rest. And they have become such standard expectations of every single night, I didn't even realize how much they were stressing me out and possibly compromising my sleep. But more on that after the break. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Mattresses are a bit of a black box. I think the weird thing about trying them is it's a leap of faith. You can't look under the hood and know what's inside. You just have to trust that whatever is happening inside your slab of tofu is going to be okay for you. Which is not unlike the nature of sleep itself. Because like the mattress, sleep is fickle and unknowable and totally necessary. Sleep is really important. 
Dr. Jardin Jean-Louis is a professor of psychiatry, neurology, and public health at the University of Miami. It's very clear if you're not sleeping enough, you can be at significant risk of high blood pressure, diabetes, dyslipidemia, heart disease, if you will. And Dr. Jean-Louis says some people are naturally short sleepers who can get by on like six hours a night. But in all probability, that's not you. You could psych yourself into believing that five hours is enough. But at some point, it's going to catch up with you. But most people, if they get six hours, they really need about seven or eight. Which is intimidating. If you've been told your whole life that you're supposed to get all these hours of sleep in at once. In the Americanized context, you want to have one bout of sleep that is sleep that happens at night. Maybe you wake up just for bathroom break only. In America, you're supposed to just go off and sleep the sleep of the dead every night. But if you're thinking about other countries or other continents, uh, for instance, you, there may be tribes in Africa where people would actually go to sleep at eight. They might get up, they might cook, welcome some travelers, spend some time with them, and then go right back to sleep. This is biphasic sleep, where you basically wake up in the middle of the night, hang out for an hour or two, and then go back to sleep. Dr. Jean-Louis says this is a totally fine way to sleep. And a lot of Americans used to sleep this way, too basically until the Industrial Revolution. Because when you have to report to a factory floor every day, there's no room for the unpredictable variety of biphasic sleep. Good workers were supposed to get their sleeping done efficiently in one fell swoop. Essentially, clock in, clock out. Which didn't mean the habit of waking up in the middle of the night just poof, went away. During industrialization, Getting up in the middle of the night still happened. It just came to be regarded as insomnia. Biphasic sleep became pathologized. But I'm not trying to make this sound like some evil plot imposed by cigar-chomping bosses. What actually changes the workday is unionization over the course of the 1800s. Medical anthropologist Matthew Wolf Meyer says it was the labor victory of getting eight hours to work, eight hours to rest, and eight hours for what you will, which certainly beats a 14-hour workday where all you do is work and sleep and barely live. And that that movement really like recaptures some of the recreational and family potential of the 24-hour day, right? It just has this unintended consequence of pitting rest against what you will. And this is where Thomas Edison comes in. Because as much as Edison might like to say that the light bulb was the great destroyer of sleep, the demands of industrialization had already started messing with how we rest. What Edison provides is a way for people to stay awake at home later cheaply, right? Because Edison laid claims to this great trifecta of the light bulb, the phonograph, and the motion picture camera. Yeah, with movies and, and, and you know, phonographs and also the ability that they could read at night. That's the Edison archivist again. So, yeah, there is that aspect of it. What Edison's inventions helped to create was individualized, personalized sleep schedules. 
essentially they led to the invention of adult bedtime. The whole idea about a middle-class household is that, you know, the kids are going to go off to bed at a certain point, apart from the parents, and then the parents get to stay up and do these fun things that the kids aren't allowed to do after their bedtime. Benjamin Reese is a professor at Emory University and the author of Wild Nights, How Taming Sleep Created Our Restless World, which is all about how sleep came to be private and individualized. The idea that you sleep out of view of other people except maybe another consenting adult um, is, uh, is a very, very weird historical phenomenon when you look at the long arc. Professor Reese says that pre-industrialization, whole families used to fall asleep on one big communal bed. If you had a lodger who was crashing with you, they were probably in the bed too. If you yourself were away from home, you can bet you probably slept with some fellow traveler. Because as night fell, after a certain point, there was nothing left to do. Everyone just sort of collapsed. And this meant that sleep was social. When you most likely got up in the middle of the night, you could just sort of look around and see who else was up. Uh, Sometimes ritual behaviors would be associated with that lovemaking, prayer, dream interpretation. I am not trying to romanticize communal sleep. Like, love to have my own bed, love to have my own bedtime. I'm just saying it's all a bit unusual historically, that you're supposed to get all your sleeping done at once, and you're supposed to do it all alone. So not just the idea that you only do it in your own house, but you only do it in your own room in the house. And that you're trained from from being a very young child that you have a special room where you do this thing and keep it out of view of others. Um, You know, for for most of human history, it's completely unthinkable, completely unthinkable. And then that's become the metric for what makes a good baby, right? Do they sleep alone? privately, through the night. That's a good kid. The culture has exposed its manners early on. As a little child, we know we're supposed to go in bed and stay in bed for the whole night. Dr. Jean-Louis says that because we are told we must lie in bed alone, or at maximum with one other sleep partner who we are not supposed to disturb, if you fall out of sleep, you just lie there marinating in your anxieties. We all have become conditioned. God forbid you wake up at two o'clock in the morning, you can't go back to sleep. That's a major problem. No, you could just get up and do something very productive and meaningful. But because you say to yourself, no, if this is happening, I must be insomniac. Then you might actually develop insomnia because of your own thinking about what insomnia might be. And so then it's not biphasic sleep if you can't get back to sleep. Then it's actually insomnia, which leads to anxiety, which leads to more insomnia. And yet, a lack of sleep gets, like, romanticized. In the media portrayals of Thomas Edison, for sure. But Professor Reese said as far back as 18th century England, insomnia was considered the affliction of an active mind. The idea was that particularly thoughtful and sensitive people who, you know, were cogitating the world's problems and so on in this you know, in intellectual way, that this would derange their sleep. And conversely, Frederick Douglass wrote about how when he was enslaved, he was so worked to the bone, so sleep-deprived, that when Sunday, his one day of rest rolled around, he spent it in, quote, a sort of beast-like stupor between sleep and wake. And he could just nod off anywhere. And Professor Reese writes that this stupor 
was taken for a lack of interiority. That the ability to fall asleep too easily was beast-like. Like Thomas Jefferson wrote that only white people could stay up all night reading or composing philosophical treatises. And so insomnia was sometimes taken as a a measure of, um, you know, intellectual temperament. And you see this sense of presumed insomnia getting played up in all the ads targeting upwardly mobile consumers. I wouldn't go so far as to call sleeplessness a badge of pride or anything, but I would argue that a low-level ambient feeling of failure and stress from the inability to perfectly execute a perfect sleep cycle is certainly a bedrock of the coffee industry and the sleep drug pharmaceutical industry and the revved-up mattress industry. This idea that we can spend money in order to make sleep better is something that the mattress really encapsulates, right? That's the medical anthropologist Matthew Wolfmeyer again. And, you know, over and over again, that's the way that mattresses get um, sold to us. If you just spend the money on this mattress, then everything else is going to fall into place. Attaining private, discreet, consolidated, regular sleep is hard enough if you have the means. But of course, not everyone is given the tools or assumed the dignity to follow all the sleep rules. One can say that in the United States and some of the other countries, that sleep has become a luxury because there aren't that many places in the rest of the world where people have a home that has two, three, four bedrooms. Dr. Krieger says COVID really brought out who gets to rest and who doesn't. And it revealed the ways in which so many of the sleep rules are fundamentally broken. Because in the odd cultural experiment that was work from home, those who were able to, those who were unyoked from the industrial clock, those who had control over their schedule and their environment, totally changed the way they slept. And so this is uh, what research has shown so far. Is, is that when you, when you give people the opportunity to actually control their own schedule more, they actually sort of correct the biological mistakes that they've made before because of work constraints, schedule constraints, and so forth. Suddenly, the people who were able to work flexible hours from home were sleeping later or earlier or napping and sort of taking back their own idiosyncratic sleep like Thomas Edison was able to. Which, you know, I suppose if I were a more brazen person, I could have gotten comfortable falling asleep on the floor of my office. But that's just not what's done. It would have made other people uncomfortable. It would have made me look bad. It would have been embarrassing. I can't do it without a bed. My own private bed. And I think part of the reason I started napping so much in the pandemic was not only that I was stressed out and my whole life was out of whack, but it was also that the culturally accepted mattress and private room were close at hand. I was lucky to be able to crash and to abide by the etiquette of sleep. Which doesn't mean that COVID didn't cause problems. For many people, COVID caused nightmares. It caused severe insomnia, that kind of thing. And what's interesting about about the insomnia and the nightmares is that people in the U.S. started to complain about those things way before there were hardly any cases in the U.S. Which goes back to this idea that so much of sleep is a mind game. 
which is definitely not to minimize the real dangers of sleep apnea or insomnia or any number of chronic sleep disorders. But I just have to say, I even felt a difference in my own attitude towards sleep in the course of preparing for these interviews. Because one night, I went to bed early, and I woke up at 1 a.m. And normally when this happens, I beat myself up about it. I start doing the calculations, like, okay, I can still get in a solid five hours if I just go to sleep now. Now, go to sleep now. And I beat myself up for not being able to fall back asleep, and I stare at the clock while the hours tick away. But this time, instead of being like, ah, Avery, you screwed it up, I was like, okay, this is biphasic sleep. There's a historical precedent for this. This is not a biological problem, and you are not a failure. And that sense of calm helped me eventually drift back off to sleep again. This sounds so cheesy, but it really helped to just be kind to myself. Because at the end of the day, we're just so much softer and more impressionable than we may even know. Well, yes, there are people who've had a history of not sleeping well. The minute they touch the doorknob to open the bedroom, the anxiety level goes up. Why? Because all of a sudden the brain remembers each time you enter this environment, you're up the whole time. So what do you do about this? Well, how about you keep the door open? So you don't have to touch a doorknob anymore. All of the stimuli that condition you for poor sleep, you get rid of them. And so if you think of the mattress like this, as a stimulus to condition you for good sleep, a sort of talisman, a lucky token, Dr. Jean-Louis says, then, the mattress is a totally effective tool for sleep. You mentioned the term psychosomatic earlier. This may be the context where it does apply. Some people say, if I don't sleep on a hard mattress, my sleep is terrible. Some say it has to be soft. Otherwise, I have bad sleep. You can condition yourself to having certain type of sleep based on environmental factors. Dr. Krieger agrees. A lot of the mattress is grounded in basically superstition, and it works. If you think a mattress is going to help you sleep, just like you think that a glass of milk at night is going to help you sleep, then you're going to sleep better. Wait, is the glass of milk thing not real? Does that not actually help you sleep? It actually doesn't have enough of the chemicals that make you sleepy to help you sleep. And and so what that is, what that is, it's part of the ritual. If you believe spending thousands of dollars on a mattress will help you sleep better, it might help you sleep better. If you believe a CBD mattress will help you sleep better, it might help you sleep better. If you believe that ordering a premium mattress in a box will take the stress out of mattress shopping and make you less stressed and help you sleep better, hey, it might help you sleep better. Because there's nothing inherently magical about a mattress, especially if you do get the chance to look under the hood and break down what's inside. There's a thin layer of latex on the top Um, this more plush kind of memory foam underneath it. And then there's a base that's a little more rigid um, that gives you most of the support. There are a bunch of message boards out there that can tell you the specific kinds of foam that you can find in different mattresses. And so when Harrison Liu was in his early 20s and couldn't afford a mattress, he found out that the fancy mattress of a specific boxed mattress company, which I'm not going to name, was essentially just three slabs of foam, which Harrison ordered and glued together. It was shockingly anticlimactic. The mattress took like half an hour to an hour. Um, 
honestly, when I did it, I was really astounded by how easy it was. How much did it cost? Oh man, okay. Uh, the full size, I think, cost somewhere around $400. At the time, Harrison says the mattress company was selling the same thing for $900 to $1,000. And Harrison slept on his homemade mattress for years. It was only recently that Harrison decided to upgrade to a king-size mattress. Only for size reasons. There was nothing wrong with his homemade mattress. In fact, he decided to make his new mattress himself again. But he got curious about how his old mattress held up. And so he ripped it open to look inside. Um, you can definitely tell, like, the foam slowly starts to degrade. It starts to oxidize. The layers look different. But it was still just as comfortable. But if I were okay with the shape, or the size, uh, I probably would have kept it for a few years more. Although, you know, who is to say if Harrison would keep his mattress for 20 years? So these are yeah, still mostly coil. These are non, non-hybrid mattresses. This is a coil mattress. That's a hybrid. Back at Raymore and Flanagan, Chuck and Lisa took the salesman's card and told him they were considering a serious investment in a mattress, but that they had to sleep on it, literally. I feel sorry for a mattress right now because it doesn't realize it's about to be subjected to this level of scrutiny. It knew it, but it just didn't. It waited for you to find that. <laughs> and in the morning, the spell of the mattress store was broken. I felt like we were both like, yeah, not urgent. Because it turned out Lisa and Chuck had slept fine on the mattress they already had, which is to say, they didn't notice it at all. Next time on Nice Try. So whole families and households used to share one bed. But then the bed became privatized and individualized and marketed into a luxury. And I have this feeling that people are going to look back at our time and tell the exact same story about the toilet. Well, after all, my goodness, uh, uh, how could you possibly imagine sharing a bathroom at the toilet with uh, other family members? The opulenting of the Western bathroom and the culture of modern cleanliness as examined through the great mystery of why Americans cannot seem to fully embrace the bidet. Nice Try is a collective effort from Megan Kinane, our senior producer, Diana Buds and Sarah Burke, our associate producers, fact-checking by Selena Solon. Lisa Pollock is our editorial consultant. Alex Higgins sound designed and engineered this episode. Our theme song is by Greg Pliska, with additional scoring by Greg, Alex, and me. Special thanks to Curbed Editor Sukjong Hong, and thank you also to Holly Marino from the Thomas Edison National Historic Park, who delighted us with a full investigation into Edison's office cot. Our showrunner is Art Chung. Our executive producers are Nishat Kurwa and Kelsey Keith. This episode was written and performed by me, Avery Truffleman. Nice Try is a product of Curbed and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Find us wherever you listen. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. 
Questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. 